When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Vladimir Putin just responded to the greatest threat to his power. The lead starts right now. The Russian leader with his first public comments claiming moments ago that any attempt at internal mutiny will end in defeat and making an offer to Wagner fighters. And the bombastic leader of the Wagner group also breaking his silence, giving the real reason he claims why his forces were headed toward the Russian capital. But after a stunning turn, one major question remains. Where is Yevgeny Prigozhin? Plus, Ukraine's unique opportunity to capitalize on the chaos. CNN is along the front lines. Welcome to The Lead, everyone. Jake Tapper is off today. I'm Bianca Goladriga in New York. And hi, Bianca. I'm Aaron Burnett, live in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. Joining Bianca today here, the fallout from the attempted armed insurrection in Russia is reverberating across the front lines and the entire region. The Kremlin right now says Russian President Vladimir Putin is meeting with the heads of law enforcement agencies after that attempted insurrection threatened Putin's iron grip on power. And last hour, as Bianca mentioned, Putin addressed the nation, calling the rebellion led by the Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin a mutiny led by traitors who betrayed their country. Putin also offering the Wagner fighters who did not participate a chance to join the former Russian military. But it is that suggestion that may have led to the insurrection in the first place, because earlier today, Prigozhin claimed he wasn't even trying to overthrow Putin. He says he was demonstrating against the Russian government's attempt to take over his military and to force his fighters to sign contracts with the Russian Ministry of Defense. Well, the Russian prime minister admitted today that Moscow faced a, quote, challenge to its internal stability when Prigozhin and his fighters took over a southern Russian city on Saturday and threatened to march all the way to Moscow. All of this was unfolding in Russia as Ukrainian forces claimed that they have been beating back Russian forces and taking territory, making advances around the embattled city of Bakhmut in the east and other parts of the southeast. And I want to bring in CNN's international diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, uh, to begin our coverage today. And Nick, let's just start with what we just heard from Putin, as Bianca said, finally breaking his silence. But days have passed before he did so. Brief remarks. Uh, a Kremlin spokesperson had claimed Putin's speech would, quote, determine the fate of Russia. Well, if that's the case, then what do we take away from it? Maybe the Kremlin hopes that Putin's speech will determine the fate of Russia. Putin surely hopes it will determine the fate of Russia because he's trying to say, you know, he is part of the savior, part of the saving Russia from this possible uprising, this armed uprising, dangerous uprising on the on the streets of Russia by these forces coming into the country. It, this is a narrative that the Kremlin wants. Uh, this is the narrative that they want to set, that everything is OK now. 
everyone pulled together. We're going to hold these people to account. We're not going after these soldiers, these Wagner mercenaries, the ones that didn't do anything wrong. They can sign up and become uh, a proper part of the military. And no surprise, uh, Putin blaming the West and Ukraine for trying to ferment and exploit this situation. This is very typical of Putin, very typical of how the Kremlin defends itself at a, at, at a moment of weakness. Fascinating here that he doubles down on Prigozhin, won't name him, which shows you how much Prigozhin is under under Putin's skin, doubles down calling him a traitor, which begs the question, if you are still calling him a traitor and, uh, and only a few hours earlier he was able to call you and your government out again, why did you let him go and escape on Saturday, which seems to point to Putin's weakness, which points to my point that they hope this will help, but some parts of it doesn't make it sound like or look as if it will, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, it seems very confusing, Nick, to that point, right? I mean, he was marching on Moscow. They were able to do something or wanted to do something. They should have been able to do something. Now they're calling him a traitor without, as you point out, Putin using Prigozhin's name directly. Uh, so is, is Prigozhin essentially a dead man, or is this showing that Putin thinks that killing him or hurting him would do too great of a damage to Putin? But I think there was a possibility that Putin was concerned or was just prevaricated or, you know, got cold feet about trying to kill Russians on Russian Russian soil, that it might that might have blown back in his face and, and drawn people's uh, attention to the fact of what Prigozhin is saying, that the war is ill-conceived and ill-fought. And there's a lot of Russians would buy into that particular narrative. But I think the fact that the military didn't go after him um, speaks to the fact that that Prigozhin still has, you know, a potential voice left uh, and that Russia is somehow, for some reason, um, not determined to, to completely silence him, which really doesn't make sense. Prigozhin from this will absolutely take away that if he is anywhere within the grasp or reach of Russia's military or intelligence services, then that's not a safe place to be, because clearly, uh, clearly Putin would like to have him disappear off quietly. But let's not forget, Prigozhin was doing a lot, uh, uh, making a lot of money for Putin in countries like the Central African Republic, Mali, Libya, Sudan, gold deals, yes. diamond deals, all those sorts of things. He has the keys to that kingdom. So yeah. is Putin letting him live because they're still trying to work out that piece of the puzzle? Obviously, here in Ukraine, you know, there, there's real concern over what this means for Wagner Group, right? Do they, what happens on the front lines? Uh, the mayor of Kiev here was telling me today they don't know where Prigozhin is. And, you know, if they do, they're certainly not telling us. But it just speaks to the uncertainty about what role the Wagner troops are going to play on the front lines and when they have played such a crucial role in this war so far. It's got to be a boost for morale on the front lines for Ukrainian troops. And, and, and if you get some of those Wagner mercenaries to sign up for the, you know, to sign up for the defense ministry, how well will they fight? How well will they integrate? It, it, it's a mess behind the scenes. It's a mess at command level. It's going to be a mess potentially on the ground. Prigozhin himself earlier on today said that the vast majority, 98 percent of his fighters, did not want to sign up for the military. Are we really supposed to believe that Russia is going to let them go mm. and join him in, in Belarus? That seems unlikely. Why would you let this guy who's clearly a thorn in your side, clearly you don't want him speaking, why would you let him retool up uh, with his forces again somewhere else? There are elements of this that still don't make sense. We were saying that over the weekend, and I think it still remains true. Yeah, absolutely. Some some real questions and, and chaos uh, that we, we know is there, even if we can't 
ascertain exactly what it is. Nick Robertson, thank you so much. And the Russian officials right now say they are investigating whether Western countries had a role in Prigozhin's attempted coup. Today, President Biden insisted, though, that the U.S. had, quote, nothing to do with it. Our own Jeremy Diamond is live at the White House at this hour for us. And Jeremy, look, I, I, you know, to be honest, right over the past couple of days, as we've been following these quick movements here, that's the message top U.S. officials have been frantically trying to convey to Russia since the uprising began, that they had nothing to do with it. Uh, yeah, that's right. And it's a message that we're told that U.S. diplomats conveyed quietly behind the scenes directly to Russian officials over the weekend. The National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said that there was good and uh, direct communication with the Russians over the weekend to emphasize that point. But there's another way in which U.S. officials were also conveying that idea that the U.S. was not involved uh, with this attempted insurrection. And that was through the White House's strategic silence on this matter. We heard very little from the White House over the weekend other than the fact to convey the fact that they were actively monitoring the situation. And that was strategic because they didn't want to lend any kind of appearance of Western interference. And the president today, he himself emphasized that strategy, saying that he wanted to give no excuse to Putin to be able to try and blame the West or NATO for what was happening inside of his country. And, and today, uh, that silence, that caution continued as John Kirby, uh, he declined to even define exactly what happened in Russia or to weigh in on Prigozhin's motives or what this means for the future of Russia. And that's in part because the U.S. doesn't know exactly what will happen next, as the president emphasized today. We're going to keep assessing the fallout of this weekend's events and the implications for Russia and Ukraine, but it's still too early to reach a definitive conclusion about where this is going. The ultimate outcome of all this remains to be seen, but no matter what comes next, I will keep making sure that our allies and our partners are closely aligned in how we are reading and responding to the situation. And that final point by the president has really been the defining characteristic of how President Biden and his administration have sought to address Russia's war in Ukraine. That is by remaining united and carrying on a united front with the U.S.'s allies. That's why the president over the weekend was speaking with several key NATO allies. Today, he spoke with the prime minister of Italy, and he said that he expects to speak once again with Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. The U.S. also tomorrow expected to announce $500 million of additional security aid for Ukraine. Another key message amid all of this is that the U.S. will continue to support Ukraine no matter what happens inside of Russia. Aaron. All right, Jeremy, thank you very much. Something I can tell you officials here, just speaking to them today, continue to emphasize how much they are aware of how significant U.S. weaponry is and how they want to continue to make that point clear. Joining me here in Kiev is Maria Avdiva. She's a Russian and Ukrainian uh, security expert. And I very much appreciate your time, Maria. So, uh, you know, after days of silence from both Prigozhin and Putin, now suddenly we hear from both of them, almost back to back. Uh, of course, Prigozhin speaking on tape for about 11 minutes, Putin for about five minutes to address the Russian people. Let's start with Putin. What did you hear in those five minutes? Well, it's uh, nothing, nothing important, he said, but uh, his uh, press spokesman uh, Peskov said that there will be something that uh, people will be shocked with, but nothing happened. And this mm. means that Putin tries to keep control of the power vertical that is falling apart. The whole Russian system is falling apart, and now he tries to restore his face, restore uh, his image as a strong man who can control what is happening in Russia, which in reality he does not. So, so now, okay, there's Putin speaking for five minutes, Prigozhin, speaking for 11 minutes on tape, whereabouts unknown. I emphasize that. The mayor of Kiev today, uh, Mayor Klitschko, told me, well, they don't know where he is. And again, they may or they may not. 
uh, know where he is, but he he's supposed to was banished to Belarus. He could be here in Ukraine. He could be in Belarus. He could be anywhere. Does it surprise you that at this point we simply do not know where he is? Yes, this and then the, he can speak freely. Someone uh, who gave an order to shut down several uh, Russian helicopters and the, several planes is now speaking right, he freely. He did shoot down. Russian soldiers died. Yes, exactly. And then uh, he made it and he stopped uh, 200 kilometers before Moscow. And uh, someone who did that now can freely uh, uh, speak on public and publicly continue humiliating both uh, Minister of Defense and uh, Gerasimov, the head of the general staff, because he blames them and he says openly that they both are incompetent. So this shows us that there are different groups of influence inside Russia and there is a war happening between them. And all of this is happening because of, of Kiev, where we are, right? This is what has sparked all of this unrest, uh, this coup, all of it in Russia. I was speaking to a, a Ukrainian soldier on the front lines in Bakhmut tonight. They have operations tonight. He said there was panic initially among the Russian forces on Saturday, that it has since normalized a bit, but that there's still great uncertainty about what happens from here. Uh, has this changed the counteroffensive itself? From what we hear from Ukrainian officials and we see on the battlefields that the uh, Ukraine continues attacking in several directions. So there is not a major move in one direction, as we have seen, for example, with Kherson or Kharkiv, but mm. more uh, smaller moves all along the front line. And this means that Ukraine is probing the front line, seeing where it can attack at the most. And then what is, is important is that Ukraine is now using the tactics to uh, attack uh, Russian rebels bases and Russian lines of supply. And this is why Ukraine is asking uh, for more weapons to do that and to uh, cut off the supplies for the Russian troops. Maria, thank you very much. We appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. All right. And thanks so much to Maria. And coming up, we're going to speak with a man who two weeks ago predicted that the Wagner Group would turn on Putin, why he warns the West should be particularly prepared for what could happen next in this shocking and in many ways unexpected saga. And are Russian leaders distracted? Some of the gains made along the front lines here in Ukraine as the unrest unfolds. And welcome back to The Lead. I'm Aaron Burnett in Kyiv, Ukraine, where moments ago an advisor to the Ukrainian government publicly mocked tonight's speech by Vladimir Putin, suggesting that Russia is waiting for a new president to take power, Biana. And we just got this new video in from Moscow, where the Kremlin says right now Vladimir Putin is meeting with top law enforcement officials after an armed insurrection threatened his grip on power. I want to bring in former Deputy Director of National Intelligence Beth Sanner and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, General Philip Breedlove. Uh, welcome both of you. Beth, let me start with you. What did you make of Vladimir Putin's short comments tonight? It had been billed as comments that would decide the fate of the country. I think it's safe to say that was a bit of an overstatement. But my first thought was, where was this speech and where was this side of Vladimir Putin Friday night or Saturday as this mutiny was just taking place? Yeah, I mean, it was a little under underwhelming, to say the least, but I think that he had to. I mean, it was about 10 o'clock, I think you all said, Moscow time. And, you know, with Prigozhin coming out earlier today, 
Putin had to say something. Prigozhin had set the narrative for today and Putin had to reassert himself. But I think that the fact that this was so short and really didn't say much um, was a fact that maybe they're just not ready yet. But I think that we shouldn't take this as obviously the final word. This is still underway. And this is just kind of step one. We should expect to see some more shoes to drop, maybe some personnel moves. We don't know yet. Yeah, we had expected perhaps that we would hear of some personnel moves in terms of who's in charge of the defense leadership there or the war apparatus. That didn't happen. Uh, we didn't hear, Beth, uh, Putin mentioned Prigozhin by name. It is something that he does when he doesn't want to speak uh, about a quote-unquote enemy. That is how he does not uh, address Alexei Navalny in the same manner. But we heard Prigozhin earlier say that Wagner is alive and well in Belarus, clearly a contrast to what we just heard from Vladimir Putin. Yeah, this is a big dilemma for um, for Putin. You know, Wagner is more important um, than just what it was doing in Ukraine. Um, but clearly he's worried about what will happen to those fighters. So you heard in Putin's speech, really that dividing between the bad guy Prigozhin and the and the patriots of the Wagner fighters. But Wagner as an organization is actually a, a very potent arm of foreign policy for the Kremlin in Africa and the Middle East. And that cannot just be snap the Putin takes it over. They have to figure out how that works. And so I think they're very, very busy dealing with an incredible amount of complexity in working out their next moves and figuring out how to deal with all the stakeholders and all the dilemmas that they have. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a misnomer, General, when people categorize the um, the Wagner Group as some sort of private army. It is a branch of the Kremlin, a heavily armed branch at that. And Vladimir Putin, we heard, offered their troops the opportunity to now sign contracts with the Ministry of Defense. He also said you could join other law enforcement or go home to your families or go to Belarus. How do you interpret this? Is this an olive branch to these fighters? Well, it's really very odd. I haven't heard the whole text of Lavrov's remarks, but he actually said in the last several hours, apparently, that, yes, Wagner still had utility, especially in Africa, where, quote unquote, they're doing a good job. So the whole surrounds of Wagner and what it's going to be in the future is, is it's quite astonishing right now how they're working this all out. And I think Mr. Putin was caught short. Again, I agree with uh, my predecessor's remarks. This, this is a Putin that wasn't quite ready, I think, for these remarks. And he's trying to just knit together the fabric that's beginning to tear in the support from him around him. So this is a leader that's going to be trying to scramble to be seen as in charge, not only as a political leader, but as a strong leader of his military because the last two days have challenged both of those pictures. We know that Yevgeny Prigozhin had been saying from the get-go that, that this wasn't uh, something that, that he wanted to do in terms of changing leadership in Russia. This wasn't a revolt, that this was just him lashing out at the fact that his fighters would now have to sign up with the Ministry of Defense. And he hasn't been shy about attacking the leadership there of this war. We didn't hear Vladimir Putin address that today. There had been some speculation. Perhaps we'd see some changes. What will you be watching for in terms of how this impacts the war and its leadership? 
Well, they're both tiptoeing around each other a little bit. Um, uh, as you, as we've seen, it most of Prigozhin's remarks were aimed at Shoigu and Gerasimov uh, until just at the last moments of the insurrection, or whatever you call it, where Mr. Prigozhin spoke out so stridently that this war was a sham and that it was on false principles and that NATO wasn't attacking and Ukraine wasn't attacking. That was the first remarks that literally were sort of aimed at Mr. Putin. But most of what Bergosin is doing, I think, I, I slightly disagree with the way you said that. I think he wants to see sh- change in leadership, but the military leadership. Yes. I don't think maybe he was out to change, uh, you know, the leader's position. No, no, but that, this that is, is what going I to yeah. be a problem. Yeah, so this is going to be a problem in the future for both Putin and Prigozhin, and I'm quite frankly surprised that Prigozhin is still able to sort of hide and make these sort of follow-on statements. Yeah, we will watch uh, to see what happens next. Beth Sanner and General Philip Breedlove, thank you. And Aaron, uh, that is the big question. We, we have yet to find out where exactly Prigozhin is right now. Yeah, and such a crucial question here. And meanwhile, on the front lines in Ukraine, they are trying to take advantage of this, talking about gains that they say they're making. Our Ben Wiedemann is actually with Ukrainian fighters tonight along the front lines in this country, talking to one of those fighters tonight. He says, look, night is when we do some of our big operations. So all of that happening now here in Ukraine. And we'll talk about the gains Ukraine says they're making as that power struggle plays out in Moscow. And we are back with our world lead live from Kyiv, Ukraine. The failed military insurrection by the Wagner mercenary group has major implications for the world and, of course, for Ukraine and its defense against Vladimir Putin's invasion. Kyiv says it achieved, quote, tactical success on the battlefield as Wagner troops marched towards the Russian capital. And today, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited troops in eastern Donetsk, where he met with military officers and handed out awards. CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports from the front lines in eastern Ukraine tonight. A brief revolt in Russia complicating the fight on the front line in Ukraine. Now, as Prigozhin halts his uprising and relocates to Belarus as part of an agreement to avoid Russian bloodshed, Wagner's future on the battlefield is uncertain. The purpose of the march was to prevent the destruction of the Wagner PMC and the prosecution of those who made a huge number of mistakes in the course of the special military operation due to their unprofessional actions. The society demanded this. All the soldiers who saw us supported us. Eager to accelerate the halting start of their counteroffensive, the Ukrainian military claimed a spate of advances over the weekend. The Russian defense ministry has yet to comment on the Ukrainian claims. In the southeast, Ukrainian troops claimed to liberate the village of Rivnopil, Ukrainian armed forces said they cleared a strategic Russian position on the western bank of the Siversky Donetsk Donbass Canal. And in the long embattled town of Bakhmut, Ukrainian troops said they made gains on territory that Wagner fighters fought mercilessly to claim for months. The battle in Bakhmut unfolded in close quarters among the trenches, some fighting even taking place at point blank range, a Ukrainian commander said. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the front lines of Donetsk 
to praise the efforts of the troops to advance. Ukraine is proud of each and every one of you. You are tough, strong, are real Ukrainians. Everyone in the country understands that you are with us. Those who are not on the front line, everyone knows you are doing the most difficult work right now. Despite these small territorial gains, the front lines remain largely unchanged. While Ukraine has claimed some tactical success, it remains to be seen whether it's enough to turn the tide of war. So far, the going is indeed tough. This evening, the deputy defense minister put out a statement on Telegram saying, our troops are having a really hard time. It is very difficult. Then, she added, but they are moving forward steadily. Aaron? Ben, thank you very much. Ben Wiederman in eastern Ukraine. And joining me here in Kiev is Evgenia Kravchuk, a member of the Ukrainian uh, parliament. And Evgenia, thank you very much for, for joining me. Um, you know, talking to uh, a soldier on the front lines uh, near Bakhmut, a Ukrainian soldier, uh, you know, he was saying to me, he had talked about that they had felt that there was panic on the Russian side on Saturday, that and these were Russian military troops that they were against right now, not Wagner, but that there was great uncertainty about what this would mean and there was disarray, but that that has now changed, that, that at least for now it's sort of more back to business as usual in terms of how the Russian troops are operating. Is this uh, a window that Ukraine can still exploit? Oh, for Ukraine, it doesn't change anything. I mean, we would do the country offensive without prohosion, with prohosion, whatever happens in Russia. But I believe that what happened with this rebellion, cope, whatever you call it, will have the long-lasting consequences for mm -hmm. Russia. Because uh, Putin got a major blow. Uh, everyone in the world saw how... Uh, Wagner Group came as close to Moscow as Philadelphia is closer to Washington, D.C. It, mm -hmm. It's 125 miles. Uh, yeah. And no one was stopping. Um, who was well, he stopping? He stopped himself, essentially. Exactly. So uh, there were no people saying, oh, no, don't go to Moscow. People were taking selfie. So uh, it, it clearly shows that this image that Putin tried to uh, show that he's a Tsar, he's, you know, the, the autocrat, it doesn't work and it will not work anymore. He can try and have a lot of, uh, you know, sittings with the ministries and everything, but uh, even in Russia itself, uh, th this image had cracked. Uh, for Ukrainian soldiers, of course, every day is another opportunity mm -hmm. uh, to regain more territories. And actually, it more depends on how much ammunition we get. And, and, and I know that's a crucial question, the supplies. Gevgeny um, Prigozhin, in his, in his taped remarks tonight, we don't know where they were from, he spoke for about 11 minutes. He said that if Russian troops had marched on the first day of the war here on Kyiv, the way that he marched on Moscow this weekend, that Russia would have taken Ukraine in one day, as it said, because of how effective he was in, in marching on Moscow. Um, were you shocked when you saw how he moved through Russia? That there was not just no pushback from Russian troops at all, but that there were people greeting him and cheering him. Well, actually, all the Russian troops are in Ukraine right now, so uh, they there had no to use um, militia, you know, um, um, getting uh, national guards and everything. Mm. But the troops are in Ukraine, stuck, uh, trying to uh, actually not to gain more territory, but now they are defending of the occupied territory. And uh, in uh, what also uh, is important, I think that. Uh, uh, 
Prigozhin, as you say, could not march to Kiev because Prigozhin was trying to get Bakhmut for 10 months, for mm. almost a year, and lost thousands, tens of thousands of uh, convicts, of course, they, you know, the criminals, yes. they got out of prisons and, and gained uh, the weapons. What could go wrong? And, and, and yet uh, it is around Bakhmut tonight where we're talking to soldiers on the front lines. They're still there, Ukrainians fighting. They're still there. As Ben Wiedemann says, this front line has has not moved a lot. Exactly. Is that we a disappointment at this point? We are regaining territories near Bakhmut and actually uh, even mm -hmm. some streets inside of the city. So actually they could not take its city itself. Uh, of course, it is uh, difficult because Russians uh, mined a lot of territories, especially yes. in the south. So it takes longer because we need to make sure that we take out the uh, supply chains and, um, you know, whatever stocks they have mm -hmm. on the uh, occupied territories. That's why we need attack arms to yes. get to, to have our arms longer. Yeah. <laughs> right. The attackums. OK. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Evhenia Kravchuk and Prigozhin brokering a deal Saturday, right, to leave Russia and go to Belarus. But is he in Belarus? There's no evidence of that. No one seems to know. One Belarusian opposition leader says that the Wagner boss is not welcome in Belarus. We'll be back. We're back with our world lead, the State Department, saying it doesn't know where Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin is after his failed rebellion on Moscow, which, Biana, is pretty incredible, right? I mean, this is a guy who often likes to broadcast uh, where he is very loudly. Yeah, and, and that's leading some people to speculate whether he's even in the country where he was uh, thought to have gone, and that is Belarus. And this, of course, after the Kremlin said that Prigozhin had agreed to leave Russia and live in, in that neighboring country, an ally of Russia. CNN's Jim Shudo is with us now. And, and Jim, you spoke to the Belarusian opposition leader, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya. Does she know uh, about where Prigozhin might be? I spoke to her just a short time ago this afternoon. I asked her that, is Prigozhin now in Belarus and are Wagner forces, if not there now, headed to Belarus? And she says she's he, seen no evidence of either of those things, that the Wagner leader is headed there or that those forces are headed there. And here's what she said as to why she thinks that story is out there. I don't know what Prigozhin intends to do in Belarus, but he's definitely not welcomed in our country. He's a war criminal and he can bring the war to Belarus. And we don't want that. We uh, heard from uh, Prigozhin today that Lukashenko promised him to legalize the Wagner group. What it means in practice, we don't know. She said the intention of this story is to mislead. She did say, though, anything is possible. And if Prigozhin were to end up there or his forces would end up in Belarus, that that would be a threat not only to the country itself, but she said the possibility of becoming a threat to Eastern Europe, including those Eastern uh, facing NATO nations such as Poland that are bordering Belarus. Uh, and she, of course, brought up the possibility that Russia might transfer nuclear weapons to Belarus, which is something that's been discussed as well. It, it is it, it is a, a dangerous, volatile mix, she says. Yeah, it was just last week, I believe, that Vladimir Putin said the first installation of those tactical yeah. nuclear weapons had been transferred over to Belarus. Um, Jim Shudo, fascinating to hear from her. Thank you so much. Thanks. Well, I want to bring in Leon Aaron. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Leon, uh, first, I want to get you to respond to what we heard from Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, the Belarusian opposition leader, telling Jim Shudo that, that she doesn't think that Prigozhin is anywhere near that country 
What do you think? There's a lot of speculation going on on social media, but what is your take on this? Well, uh, Lukashenko, the leader of, of Belarus, the dictator, uh, probably does not sneeze uh, without clearing it with Putin. So, so whatever guarantees he gave Prigozhin, uh, they are Putin's guarantees. And as you probably heard, Putin spoke about an hour, an hour and a half ago. And he again, instead of just keeping it silent, he again came down on uh, Prigozhin without naming him um, as a traitor and uh, somebody who damaged the unity of Russia. That does not bode well uh, to Prigozhin. Yeah, and it was interesting to hear Vladimir Putin also thank uh, Lukashenko for being the middleman uh, throughout this conflict. You actually predicted two weeks ago that Prigozhin could, in fact, turn on Putin. Do you think, do you attribute that to this concern that he has expressed publicly now, that he did not want to lose control over the Wagner Group and have it turn over to the defense ministry? Well, correct, correct. Well, that, uh, you know, Prigozhin... Uh, had been putting the, pressing the envelope, pushing the envelope for a long time, uh, until finally Putin decided to put the stop to it and uh, have Prigozhin sign a contract with the defense ministry. Prigozhin uh, refused. At this point, he already put himself outside the law, already potentially uh, put himself uh, before the firing squad for disobeying um, the command of his commander-in-chief. So I think at that point, once he uh, rolled that dice, uh, Prigozhin really had not much choice. He either had to you know, surrender and probably be arrested or at least uh, have a chance um, to uh, create a situation in which he could get out um, uh, of this corner in which he painted himself. And so yeah. I think this is, this is precisely what happened. Um, the large problem here um, is that uh, Putin has been playing a, a waiting game. I mean, he, he cannot uh, advance in Ukraine. He does not have the morale. He does not have the uh, enough um, uh, people, uh, soldiers. But what he did was uh, got himself in kind of a defensive crouch and hoping to, to outlive, to survive this offensive by Ukraine, then maybe the next one, and then have uh, some sort of Ukraine fatigue settle in the West. What Prigozhin, I think, showed is that uh, Russia, the country, and especially the armed forces, cannot wait forever um, to, to um, um, uh, accomplish this scenario. They are there to win, and that's what mm -hmm. Prigozhin accused the defense ministry of, of sabotaging um, Russia's victory, or they have to do something. And I think the patience is wearing thin. Yeah, and the calculus of Vladimir Putin had been taking up until now was that time is on his side and how quickly we have now seen that things can dramatically take a turn as quickly as they have. These two men go back many, many years. I wouldn't say that they're the best of friends, but they know each other quite well and they do have this sort of gangster mentality in their backgrounds. Were you surprised to see an effect that Putin at least appeared to blink first as Prigozhin's men and troops were marching toward Moscow. Well, this is uh, the major long-lasting impact um, on the situation. Look, um, uh, Putin has political elites, he has his people, and he has the army. And neither, none of those three key blocks of his power stood up for him. And, and Prigozhin kind of deflated this image of, of tough, unforgiving, invincible authoritarian. 
this is what happened. I think this is something that will stay in history and we'll see the repercussions of it. Well, we are continuing to follow this um, by the day and hour, and, and not just uh, within Russia, obviously, uh, Western allies and our adversaries are following this very closely as well. Leon Aaron, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, much more ahead on the fast-moving developments from Russia. Putin now making an offer to Wagner fighters after their weekend revolt. Also back here in the U.S., a Texas woman killed. See the disturbing video of the three police officers now charged with her murder. In our national lead, three San Antonio officers face murder charges after they fatally shot a woman. 46-year-old Melissa Ann Perez was killed early Friday after police were called to her apartment for a disturbance. CNN's Natasha Chen reports on how the shooting unfolded and why police say the officers were never in any danger. Now, we want to warn you, some of the video you'll see is disturbing. We're going to miss her terribly. We're heartbroken. The children of 46-year-old Melissa Ann Perez are asking for prayers after their mother was shot by San Antonio police officers shortly after midnight on Friday. The youngest of her children, just nine years old. There's no adequate explanation for how that happened. The children will be fine for a little while and then they'll burst into tears. Within 24 hours, three officers were charged with murder and taken into custody. They're no longer on the job in terms of uh, patrolling the streets of San Antonio. CNN has been unable to reach the officers who were released on a $100,000 bond for comment. An affidavit says when the officers responded to a disturbance at her apartment complex, Perez told them she had cut the wires to the fire alarm because the FBI was listening to her. Officers tried to speak with her through an open window after they determined that the damage to the fire alarm was a felony criminal mischief. Police have not yet released unedited body camera footage, but what they have released shows when an officer removed a window screen on the first floor, she threw an object hitting the officer in the arm. You're going to get shot! The officers backed away and waited for others, including supervisors, to arrive. That's when the three officers in question showed up. You ain't got no warrants. One of them saw Perez swing a hammer. The affidavit says the officer believed she might throw it at them, so he fired and she stepped back. But then... Ms. Perez advanced toward the window again while still holding the hammer, and all three officers opened fire. The police chief said it appeared Perez was having a mental health crisis. The shooting officer's actions were not consistent with SAPD's policy and training. And they placed themselves in a situation where they used deadly force, which was not reasonable. And there was no imminent threat, according to the affidavit. Their police union president expressed deep condolences to Perez's family and said the police chief followed all necessary protocols. Biana. All right, Natasha Chan, thank you. Aaron? All right, Biana, well, we are also live in Ukraine today with today's major development. Vladimir Putin's first comment since the biggest threat to his leadership, first coup attempt in Moscow in decades. CNN is live with how this is all playing inside Russia with a live report from Moscow next. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second hour of The Lead. Jake Tapper is off. I'm Bianca Goladriga in New York. 
And I'm Aaron Burnett, live from Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv. A five-minute late-night speech by Russian President Vladimir Putin after a weekend that marked the biggest political challenge in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. Wagner troops advancing towards Moscow in what appeared to be an organized armed rebellion suddenly halted after the Belarusian leader apparently helped strike a deal. The Wagner boss, though, Yevgeny Prigozhin, now speaking out today, claiming he was not attempting to overthrow Russia's military. The march to Moscow, he says, was actually a, quote, protest. He still continued to insult the Russian military, though. While back in the United States, President Biden made his first remarks about the mutiny, emphasizing that the West had nothing to do with the Russian revolt. Our Matthew Chance is inside Russia tonight amid this seismic shift. He's there. This is the last time we saw the Wagner leader departing the Russian city. He'd essentially taken over at the weekend. Amid cheers from supporters. Now Yevgeny Prigozhin is speaking out for the first time since agreeing to call off the armed rebellion that shook the Kremlin to its core. In an 11-minute recording, Prigozhin denies aiming to challenge the Russian president. The purpose of the march was to prevent the destruction of Wagner and the prosecution of those who made a huge number of mistakes in the course of the special military operation due to their unprofessional actions. Society demanded this, and all the soldiers who saw us supported us. But on Russian state television, damage control is already in full swing after a weekend of mayhem. Prigozhin's armed rebellion has failed, the presenter says. Russians stood in a united front for President Putin, she declares. But few doubt how weakened events of the past few days have left Russia's leader. But now, for the first time since the rebellion ended, Vladimir Putin has addressed the nation too, in a short speech condemning the rebellion as treachery, something Putin has in the past said he would not forgive. They wanted Russian soldiers to kill each other, to kill military personnel and civilians so that in the end Russia would lose and our society would split, choke in bloody civil strife. What will become of Yevgeny Prigozhin now? Whether he will be prosecuted or not remains unclear, although he did appear to confirm for the first time that he may indeed take a Kremlin offer to head to Belarus and resume Wagner's operations from there. That may no longer be on the table for a once loyal Putin ally who appears to have made a dangerous enemy in the Kremlin. Well, Aaron, officials in Belarus, who I've been speaking to throughout the course of the day, are refusing to confirm reports that Evgeny Prigozhin is already there. Um, and so we know the what none the wiser about that. Um, but Belarusian opposition figures, who, who I've spoken to as well, say it would be foolish of Evgeny Prigozhin to think he was safe and protected in a country that is essentially run by Alexander Lukashenko, who is one of Putin's closest allies. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Matthew, you know, obviously you're there with a view that, that very, very few in the world have right now. What is the mood? What is the feeling on the streets of Moscow right now? 
Well, I, I think that's a good question because there's, it's, it's, it's divided. There's a lot of relief, of course, that the bloodshed uh, and the threat of an armed incursion into Moscow, the Russian capital, uh, was um, averted by this deal being done. But there was also a great deal of sympathy with the critique that Yevgeny Prigozhin made about the conduct of the war in Ukraine. A lot of anger that was simmering beneath the surface uh, that Yevgeny Prigozhin sort of expressed on the part of, of many, many Russians who've seen tens of thousands of their soldiers killed inside Russia. And so relief, but also anxiety as well about what this uprising, this armed rebellion may mean for the country in the near future. Matthew, thank you very much. Matthew Chance, as I said, in Moscow tonight and in Ukraine, the big question, right? The, the, the attempted rebellion, all of it. It's all because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And of course, we're sitting here in the capital, Kiev, tonight, uh, wondering what will happen to the war here? What does this mean for the war? Well, today, Ukraine says it captured a new settlement that it's making uh, gains along the front lines in Donetsk and claims slight advances around the embattled city of Bakhmut. Our chief international security correspondent, Nick Payton Walsh, uh, is, is with us here. And we're together in Kiev. Um, you know, you know, interesting in Bakhmut talking to soldiers there, you know, that they they felt there was some initial panic on, on the part of the Russian forces, but then sort of quickly went back to business as usual. Unclear how Russian forces are really responding to this. But what do you think this means for the counteroffensive? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're Ukraine officials, you're probably stuck between trying to seize the moment of knowing there's chaos or perhaps trying to work out if that will begin to continue unraveling in Moscow in the days ahead. We don't know if this is simply going to be a months-long saga of Putin losing control or whether this is the peak of that particular chaos. And so that may be determining whether they decide to throw all their cards in at some point yeah. and launch more troops at certain weak areas. As too will the question about where any troop dislocations over the weekend may leave the Russian front lines weakest. Right, right. And big questions about that. Now, um, you know, obviously, you know, just talking to a couple of soldiers, you know, the morale seemed high. You know, they're four days on, four days off, rotations on the Ukrainian side. It's operating efficiently, at least in these particular instances. Um, but, but what does control look like in Bakhmut, where we're still talking about bits of territory per day? I mean, the initial advances we saw in the past weeks occurred roughly about the time in which Wagner first made its threats to leave and were under the most amount of pressure from the Ministry of Defence to perhaps become part of their ranks. And so it wasn't really a coincidence, I think, that Ukraine chose to throw more resources during the counteroffensive in that direction then. There are now suggestions that Wagner's presence is significantly less in that city where they threw thousands of their soldiers, yeah. lost hundreds uh, over the winter. And so the advance on Moscow may not have massively impacted there, because I think it's fair to say those troops who walked up that M4 highway towards Moscow or drove that way would have been prepared for probably weeks to do that. They wouldn't have left the front lines on Thursday mm. and turned up in Rostov. Well, on it's Friday. an interesting point um, that preparation for weeks, right? What it what it what it means about how much this was planned and where it goes from here, uh, we just don't know. But of course, it's in a sense it's it's a seminal moment for the war. And here in Kiev earlier today, uh, just just obviously where where we are, I spoke to the mayor. Uh, Mayor Vitaly Klitschko, there have been hit, as you know, right, where we are every every couple of nights. Uh, there was a strike again this weekend. And here's one part of our discussion. Actually, right now, the Russian system uh, shows so many streaming uh, under the water, political streaming. And uh, it's the Russian system, it's not, not so stable anymore. 
And uh, more and more people asking if Putin uh, was the reason of this war and uh, the country go, uh, going wrong way. And we mm. feel that, we listen that. And that's why the, the, the regression told uh, they not accept uh, the Putin and his decision. Mm. I'm more than sure, it's one day, definitely Russian people asking the government, asking the Putin, for which reason the world company left Russia? Why the Russians not anymore welcome around the world? Why is the iron, iron curtain coming back? And main question, yeah. for which reason died my husband, my friend, my brother yeah. in Ukraine? Definitely. Definitely this question gives uh, give to me. Do you think Prigozhin is back in Ukraine or does no one know? I am not ready to give you information where the Prigozhin uh, uh, is. Uh, uh, is criminal. You know, and, and, and this is interesting. Obviously, we had spoken just before Pogosian's, you know, 11-minute uh, rant. Yeah. Uh, but, but interesting how he's talking about the strain that they see in the Russian system and that Pogosian's a criminal. And afterwards, I said, well, would, if, if something were to happen and, and if Pogosian were to suddenly seize more power in Russia, what does that mean? Sort of a long pause and a, he's a criminal. It's bad. It's not better. I'll be no mistake at all. Prigozhin yeah. being in charge of the Russian war machine would be awful, frankly. Yep. Probably many soldiers in the Russian military who he'd send on more reckless tasks, but many Ukrainians too who've seen the appalling videos that Prigozhin's people have been putting out from Wagner, executing people with sledgehammers. And castrations. It was horrible, Utterly horrible stuff. grotesque yes. war crimes. And mm -hmm. so I think we would see a more reflection of that style of warfare if Prigozhin had greater control. Not necessarily an improvement uh, on this catastrophic war, but I think the key point in all of this is how Prigozhin now, despite the fact that Putin's desperately trying to draw this line under the weekend, is still out there, yeah. still using Telegram, still posting these 11 minute critiques of how yes. the abiding message is the war's been a disaster and Russians yeah. are hearing that. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And that's the question is, what does it mean there? Because on the other hand, you could say, look, the fact that Ukrainian soldiers are saying there was some disarray on Saturday among Russian troops, but then sort of reverted back to normal. In a sense, that's surprising. When you think about what's happening and then the days of silence from Putin, that it's that the front line sort of operated, I don't want to say functionally, because I know there's been issues all the way along, but without great change is, in a sense, something of it on itself. Sometimes a lot of them aren't allowed cell phones. So right. actually they may, may not, not even know. know. And so that mm. news will filter down when people rotate in and out and say, God, did you hear what happened with Prigozhin? He turned on Putin. And so, to Moscow. I mean, yeah. unthinkable before yeah. this war, even a month ago. And so there may be something which slowly impacts morale. It's pretty low there already, frankly. They're sending yeah. convicts to die, sending convicts who are injured back to die again at the front line. So it's pretty bad. Mm. It's holding. But the idea, I think, of an overnight sudden collapse where they all look at Telegram and go, oh, my God, oh God we're done. it's gone wrong. Yeah. Let's leg it. I, I can't see that necessarily happening. It yeah. will be slower. And the key point is when eventually a critical decision goes up the chain of command, when they have to choose between Bakhmut or Melitopol or places on the front line where Ukraine is pushing forwards, the people making those decisions now have proved themselves to be pretty out of touch with reality and probably not even getting on very well with each other. And that fight for yeah. survival will impact the rational level of decisions that get made at utterly vital moments. Forget about how important this is for Putin. For Russia as a state, they've already yeah. characterised this as an existential war of their survival. And so uh, losing there will be catastrophic for both Prigozhin and Putin. All right. Uh, Nick Peyton Walsh, of course, uh, we'll, we'll be speaking again later on tonight. Thank you very much. And Bianca, back to you in New York. Thanks, Aaron.
Well, coming up on The Lead, why the attempted mutiny is putting new attention on Russia's relationship with China. Then move over a Zempic. There's a new experimental pill for weight loss and tests show that it may be even more effective. And we are back with our world lead. China's communist government is throwing its support behind Vladimir Putin's regime after Wagner's failed military insurrection. Beijing is calling Russia its, quote, strategic partner in a new statement. Now, that show of support coming after a key Russian official hurriedly flew to China for talks on Sunday. CNN's David Culver is following this for us. So, David, it was Russia's deputy foreign minister that quickly flew to Beijing. Uh, in terms of what we saw in, in pictures, they were all smiles. But tell us what's going on behind closed doors in Beijing as they watch things unfold so quickly in Russia. <laughs> Yeah, Bianca, you have to imagine that that scrambling to get the deputy foreign minister to Beijing to meet with the foreign minister there, Ching Gang, was an effort to say, hey, everything's okay. We're, we're trying to stabilize things. Don't you worry, because obviously China has a lot invested here, certainly from a, a global stage perspective, if you will. I mean, they have shown themselves to be allies with Russia throughout the, its invasion of Ukraine, providing diplomatic and economic support. But the other big part of all of this is the personal relationship between President Xi and President Putin. President Xi has called President Putin his best, most intimate friend. And so to see your friend going through what arguably is a question of, of your power and perhaps a threatening of stability within the country, uh, that's concerning, especially when you consider their neighbors. They share 2,600 miles of border. And it's something that obviously China wants to make sure that their friendship is bolstered by stability within Russia. All in all, though, you have to look at how the Chinese are handling this publicly. And certainly the foreign ministry is saying actually what the White House is saying, too. And that is this is a Russian internal matter. Yeah, and no doubt these two authoritarian leaders always put their country's interests first. But, but there is really a, a true friendship and relationship that has been cultivated uh, over the past several years between these two leaders. How is Chinese state media covering this uh, chaos in Russia, if at all? It was certainly a wait and see moment, not only for officials, but Chinese state media. And they have been, even throughout the invasion of Ukraine, parroting what the Kremlin has been saying. So Chinese state media over the weekend, it was interesting, they even had... Uh, one of their reporters in a very peaceful, tranquil garden backdrop. They showed traffic as usual around the Kremlin, so really no instability whatsoever. And of course, it's where we look at Chinese social media that's often tightly controlled as well, where we started to see something that was actually quite interesting, Bianca, and that was you saw some folks posting, and this wasn't censored immediately, that they were concerned with the hypotheticals here. What if Putin falls? And so they were expressing that concern, and it was getting a lot of traction online over the weekend in China. Yeah, that is fascinating to hear, that falling through the cracks there of their censors. David Culver, thank you so much. Thanks. Well, joining me now for more on what is happening in Russia, Paulina Ivanova is a Russia correspondent for the Financial Times, along with Dmitry Alperovich, the former special advisor for the Defense Department, both Russia experts. Dmitry, let me start with you. You describe what we've seen from Vladimir Putin over the weekend and even in just the past few hours as an angry and scared leader right now. What exactly is he scared of? Well, he's scared of the fact that he has just seen the biggest challenge to his power in his entire presidency, the fact that for the first time really since 1941 when Hitler invaded Russia, you had hostile armored columns moving on Moscow, reaching within two hours of Moscow, completely unprecedented, 
And the fact that the Russian military, for whatever reason, was unable or unwilling to stop them is really uh, an incredible achievement by Prigozhin and something that Putin certainly did not expect. And he's angry because Putin values loyalty above all else. You can steal under him, you can kill, you can be uh, a criminal, but one thing you cannot be is disloyal. And the fact that Prigozhin challenged the system, even though he did not try to challenge Putin directly, Putin certainly took it as a personal challenge, is very significant. So, Polina, given that, what I'm having trouble understanding is why the Kremlin, which has such strict control over state media, actually showed images of Prigozhin being cheered on by residents in Rostov over the weekend. They have effectively helped increase his visibility and his popularity by doing so. Trust me, they did not want um, anyone to see those images, but they don't have as much control over the situation at the moment as they would like to. Um, the events happened in Rostov. There was a lot of people. There were a lot of witnesses. Every one of those witnesses had um, had a phone, was able mm. to communicate what was going on. It was a very dramatic 24 hours, but also a very highly documented 24 hours with a lot of social media content from a lot of people who were, who were experiencing it firsthand. And it was something that you couldn't, you know, brush under the carpet or conceal. So, Dimitri, where do you see things going from here? Putin remains in power, but, but what is the state of his power? You know, you and I were talking off air, and we were talking about previous leaders like Erdogan responding to attempted coups. And after that, in 2016, he was all over the airwaves and immediately clamped down on any opposition. We're not seeing that. Yeah, the big question of the entire weekend is where's Mr. Putin, right? He had the one video that he put out. Uh, su- Sunday morning, announcing that Prigozhin is a traitor. Uh, of course, then it was re- later reversed, and uh, the pr- uh, traitors were no longer going to get crushed, but going to get amnesties and maybe exiled to Belarus. He just put out another video a few hours ago, uh, still being very angry, but uh, reaffirming the commitment not to prosecute people and to let them leave. Uh, really remarkable situation. There's no question that his power is now weakened. There's no question that a lot of people around the country, the elites, Various governors, various people in the social uh, in, in the security services are probably asking themselves if Prigozhin can really get away with this, with challenging state power like this, what can I get away with? And it's not that I think that Putin is about to be overturned in some sort of coup, but his power may be weakened so much that others around in the system may be making decisions, critical decisions about their own futures, about their own enrichment uh, of, of their own coffers and, and uh, their own power without consulting with Putin, without getting permission from Putin. So you, you may have decentralization of power occurring in Russia over time. Paulina, it is very difficult to get a pulse on where Russians view uh, leadership and the true popularity of Vladimir Putin. We thought those numbers were uh, over 50 percent. And yet we didn't see that many people come out in support over the weekend. There was this air of indifference Uh, In fact, maybe it was just people were shocked at how quickly things were transpiring. But what is the sense among Russians in terms of their continued support for Vladimir Putin? And are they open for any sort of change in leadership? I mean, people were definitely completely taken off guard. I mean, completely off guard. Um, There was a high degree of anxiety just among ordinary people. Um, I was in touch with friends, relatives, um, as the column was approaching Moscow and there was a lot of anxiety about what could happen next and the instability that could happen. I mean, the last time 
Moscow experienced anything like that was 30 years ago, but that is still for a lot of people um, something in living memory. So um, there was definitely anxiety among elites. You could see this absence of decision making and really, um, for example, state uh, news anchor, one of the most kind of famous propagandists on Russian television, Margarita Simonyan, did not come out with any statement throughout all of Saturday, appearing, resurfacing, effectively only you know, another 24 hours after after the coup, um, the coup attempt with a statement in support of, of the president and criticizing uh, Prigozhin and the and the uprising. So there was a lot of, from the looks of it, you know, people trying to work out what was mm. going on and where best to align themselves. Yeah, Margarita Simonyon gave some excuse that she had been on vacation and not very believable that she hadn't been following what was, what was happening in the country. Dimitri, uh, finally to you, what will you be watching and paying closest attention to in the days and weeks to come? I think the critical question right now is what is going to happen to Prigozhin? Is he actually going to go into exile in Belarus? And by the way, if he does, is he going to preserve Wagner? Is Wagner going to go with him? Are they still going to be armed and supplied by the uh, Department of Defense, either in uh, Russia or maybe even in Belarus? And if that's the case, if he is not jailed, if he's not killed by Putin, that is going to send a signal to everyone that Putin is weaker than they thought, and you can get away with a lot. And that's going to mean, uh, you know, potential problems for him down the road. And again, I think a coup is unlikely. But one thing that I think is now a possibility, perhaps not a very likely possibility, but nevertheless a possibility, is that Putin doesn't actually run in elections next year. That perhaps mm-hmm. there's a managed transition where some elites come to him and say, you know what, let's move on to the new generation. Step aside. We'll protect you. You keep your ill-gotten gains. You'll not be sent to the criminal court of justice in The Hague. Uh, but it's time for you to move on. That is fascinating to even hypothesize about, given that they just changed the laws that would have allowed him to effectively be uh, control of the country until 2036. Things are changing rapidly. And thank you both for your expertise in covering this for us, Polina Ivanova and Dmitry Alperovich. Thank you. Thank you. Well, how the White House is responding to the failed rebellion Russia in Russia. We'll have the latest also from Pennsylvania Avenue up next. We gave Putin no excuse to blame this on the West or to blame this on NATO. That was President Biden today, making it clear that the United States was not involved in the Wagner Group's rebellion in Russia. It comes as both the White House and the State Department are really weighing where the United States goes from here in what is, of course, a a terrible relationship with Vladimir Putin. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins us from the State Department, and Jeremy Diamond is at the White House today. Uh, Jeremy, let me just start with you there, because we just heard President Biden, right? He says Western allies uh, agree they don't want to give Putin any reason to blame this on the West or on NATO. But of course, he's done that for the entire war itself, right? I mean, he's always doing that. So uh, is there any chance that he doesn't do it this time? Well, as you said, Aaron, it's certainly part of the Kremlin's playbook to blame the West and to try and foment dissent uh, among uh, the Western allies supporting Ukraine. And so it came as no surprise to the White House when this morning Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov appeared to indicate that they were going to look into whether or not there was any kind of Western support. And that's when we got the first on-the-record denial from the White House that they had no involvement with this coup. That's also why over the weekend we saw the White House being strategically silent on this matter and why the president explained 
today that he coordinated with U.S. allies to give uh, Putin and, and the Kremlin uh, no excuse, to no opportunity to try and blame the West for this. Now, interestingly, Putin, in his remarks earlier today, he did not directly blame the West. He did uh, say that this was exactly what Kyiv uh, and its Western allies would want to see inside of Russia, but he didn't directly point the finger. And so that is interesting in and of itself. Nonetheless, White House mm. officials are keeping a close eye for any further comments or any further attempts by Russia to blame the West. So, uh, Kylie, you know, so the United States was publicly very quiet about this over the weekend. And I should note over the weekend, right, we didn't hear from Putin or Prigozhin either. Now they've broken their silence. But U.S. diplomats have been very busy sending messages to Russian officials, uh, you know, on, on back channels that, you know, may, may or may not have been active recently. So what do you know about these messages? Yeah, well, listen, what we're hearing from State Department officials is that there was a very active effort to reach out to Russian officials as this all was unfolding over the weekend. As you said, publicly, U.S. officials weren't saying much, but their messages to their Russian counterparts in these diplomatic channels were essentially threefold. First of all, they expected Russia to make sure that the safety and security of the U.S. embassy and U.S. personnel in Russia was upheld. And secondarily, they were telling them that the U.S. had nothing to do with this. They really wanted to make sure that Russia knew that the U.S. had no involvement in Prigozhin's march towards Moscow. And then the third thing, of course, was they were making sure that Russians knew the United States did not want them to use their nuclear arsenal. And State Department spokesperson Matt Miller uh, did not describe how Russia responded to these messages when he was at the podium today. But what he did say is that this was a conversation. Mm. So indicating, therefore, that the Russians were actually engaging, responding in some way, shape or form, not just ignoring that these messages were coming through. And it's interesting you talk about the State Department spokesperson, Matthew Miller. Um, he said that it was a new development to see Prigozhin directly criticizing the fundamental rationale for the war. Uh, obviously, he criticizes the war in blistering terms almost every single day, right? But, but, but Matthew Miller is drawing the distinction between actually criticizing the predicate for the war itself. Is that distinction fair? And does the State Department think that this is a big development? They think that is one of the major developments out of the last, you know, 48 hours here, because we did hear from Prigozhin today, who said essentially that the aim of his march towards Moscow was to protect the Wagner force and to make sure uh, that those who had made mistakes in the Ukraine war were held accountable. Essentially, you know, we know he believes that those are folks in the Russian Ministry of Defense. But when he spoke over the weekend, yeah. he was also challenging President Putin's rationale for even invading Ukraine in the first place. And, and that's significant. And that's what Matt Miller was hitting on when he was talking about, you know, just the fact that that whole idea of the Russian invasion in Ukraine itself being challenged and also saying that President Putin uh, compared what ha what was happening to 1917 when there was a revolution that overthrew the leader of Russia at that time, which was pretty significant. Yeah, pretty significant and, and interesting that he would be the one to make that as he is the current leader. So, Jeremy, to that front, where does the White House see things going from here? At least on the face of it, right, the world looks very different today than it did a few days ago.
Well, you heard the Secretary of State just yesterday saying that it shows cracks in Putin's regime. And today, President Biden making clear that they are going to continue to assess the fallout, but that they simply don't know exactly what happens next. And interestingly, you know, in the briefing today that we had with the National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby, you know, he wasn't able to answer a lot of questions about what the future of the Wagner group is, what the future of the Putin regime is. And part of that is trying to be cautious as these events continue to develop. But part of that is an acknowledgement of this reality that uh, this is a situation that could go in a number of different directions. So they're going to continue to be cautious on this, and they're also going to continue uh, to try and not weigh in as much, again, because of those concerns that we talked about earlier. Aaron. Hmm. Jeremy, thank you. Kylie, thank you. And coming up on the lead, a court appearance in the Donald Trump classified documents case. He is due in court tomorrow and why. Plus, more coverage from Ukraine. I'll be joining you for Outfront at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern, and we'll be right back. In our politics lead, tomorrow, former President Donald Trump's co-defendant is set to be arraigned on federal charges in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. Walt Nada will appear in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida as the special counsel is requesting Trump face trial in December. With me now, Democratic strategist Paul Begala and Sarah Matthews, former White House Deputy Press Secretary in the Trump administration. Welcome both of you. Sarah, let me start with you because prosecutors gave Trump and Nada the, the list of witnesses with whom Trump's team cannot discuss the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Now, this list is part of the terms of release for Trump and Nada as they await trial. And if they violate it, they could be held in contempt or de detained even. What is the likelihood, in your view, that Trump actually takes this seriously and abides by it? I think that there is um, a problem here with Trump now having access to the witness list. Obviously, when the January 6th committee hearings were going on, we saw a case of witness intimidation happening with Cassidy Hutchinson, one of the key witnesses in that case. And so um, it makes me worried about, you know, whether it's Trump or someone in Trump world then intimidating these witnesses now that they have the names. And there is proven history showing that that, that has happened in the past. Um, Paul, I want to read an excerpt from the New York Times op-ed written by a retired and staunchly conservative federal judge. J. Michael Ledick called the Republican Party base spineless for its continued support of the former president. And here's what he said. He said, if the indictment of Mr. Trump on espionage charges, not to mention his now almost certain indictment for conspiring to obstruct Congress from certifying Mr. Biden as the president on January 6th, fails to shake the Republican Party from its morbid political senses that it is beyond beyond saving itself, nor ought to be saved. Were you surprised by this take? You know, Judge Ludwig has stepped out. He testified so powerfully before the January 6th committee. For people who don't know, he is one of the most respected, esteemed, and most conservative legal minds of the last half century. Uh, widely respected. And so for him to say that, he's no liberal. For him to say that is really quite shocking. And, and I'll, I'll let him speak to the legalities. I'm sure he's right as an expert. The politics of this, he is right about. I know politics. And our last CNN poll, 23% of Republicans said they could never support Trump for the nomination. Now, he's the, he's the dominant candidate with the rest of the party. But when you're losing 23% of your party, some number of them will bleed over the general election. Now, Trump got 94% of Republicans against Joe Biden. It still wasn't enough. He lost. He's, so he's eroding with his own party. He's eroding with independence. Judge Ludwig is right. They, they may find a situation where Trump is unbeatable 
for the nomination, but unelectable in the general election. And that, that's catastrophe for the Republican Party. And yet he continues to lead, at least uh, in the Republican early polls. Uh, Sarah, let, let's turn to the 2024 presidential race and specifically talk about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, because he's rolling out his first major policy proposal, and that is a crackdown on illegal immigration. This includes building a wall at the southern border. Of course, if this sounds familiar, it's because we've seen this movie before. If the Republican electorate views this as sort of a, just a Trump carbon copy, do you think that is a good thing or a bad thing for DeSantis to differentiate himself? I actually think this is a really smart issue for DeSantis to try to differentiate himself on from Donald Trump. Donald Trump likes to talk a big game on the border, but when you look at the facts, a lot of the things he promised during his campaign, he actually didn't fulfill. I mean, look, he said that we were going to build a wall and Mexico was going to pay for it. While we did build a portion of the wall, it was never finished and Mexico didn't pay for it. And so Ron DeSantis is trying to highlight that, that uh, Donald Trump did not fulfill these promises. And I think it's smart for him to outline what his policy proposals are then for uh, fixing this issue that has only gotten worse under President Biden. And in many respects, Paul, it appears that he's trying to out-Trump even Trump. I mean, DeSantis's policy rollout also includes ending birthright citizenship, which Trump tried to do, but ran into something called the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which grants citizenship to all people who were born or naturalized here in the U.S. So DeSantis is saying that he's going to basically force the courts and Congress to address this failed policy. He didn't say how. Do you think that he has some insight into how to go around the 14th Amendment, perhaps even change it? Yeah, I, I hope he didn't pay full price for that Yale Law degree because, uh, man, he's not using it. Uh, he's clearly a smart guy. So I have to presume this is a political stunt. Uh, and and I, I don't think that's the way to go at Trump. Sarah may be right. She knows her party better than I do. My own sense is it's not a smart strategy for DeSantis to try to out-Trump Trump among Trump voters on a Trump issue. I think the far better strategy is what Chris Christie's doing, which is not to say Trump wasn't Trumpy enough, but saying Trump wasn't for you. Trump neglected you. He's in it for himself. And you're suffering. He betrayed you. I think it's a far better argument to make it about the voters. Uh, but but uh, Mr. DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, seems uh, hell-bent on out-Trumping Mr. Trump. And I just don't think he's going to be able to. Maybe his wife will change her name to Melania or something. I don't know. But I don't think it's going to work. So, Sarah, speaking of Trump, uh, on Truth Social, he finally weighed in on this failed um, uprising and mutiny in Russia. And here's what he said. A big mess in Russia, but be careful for what you wish for. Next in May be far worse. Um, maybe you to say next. It may be far worse. Uh, what would a second Trump presidency mean for, for Vladimir Putin and his war on Ukraine? And perhaps, you know, Vladimir Putin's leadership is now being called in, into question as well. I think that a Trump uh, presidency would be music to Vladimir Putin's ears. Obviously, Trump is expressing his support seemingly on true social for Putin staying in power um, when I think that he should be showing support for our ally Ukraine in their fight for freedom in this unprovoked war. I, I think that this is an area, too, for our um, GOP field to differentiate themselves from Donald Trump. Um, who has been, you know, soft on Russia. And it seems like DeSantis has been a little uh, soft on this issue as well. And so I think that the others in the field could really set themselves apart by taking a strong stance um, in supporting Ukraine. 
We'll see what the other candidates um, say if they weigh in uh, on this crisis unfolding in Russia as well. Paul Begala, Sarah Matthews, thanks as always for your time. Thanks, Brianna. Thank Great to see you. And coming up, the experimental pill that could be one of the most effective treatments for weight loss to date. I'll tell you more. In our health lead, a significant breakthrough in an experimental medication for weight loss. A study of Eli Lilly's next-gen drug shows the highest amount of weight loss for any drug yet, up to 24% over the course of 48 weeks. CNN's Meg Terrell joins me now for more on this. So, Meg, break down these results and how it compares to other currently approved medicines specifically for weight loss. Yeah, so this is a new class of medicines. We've heard about some of them like Ozempic and Wegovy. Uh, those medicines go after one hormone in the gut. They try to mimic it to try to suppress appetite and sort of slow stomach emptying so that you stay full longer. Uh, now, we've been seeing iterations upon these drugs to get better levels of weight loss. Another one is called Mount Jaro that's already on the market for uh, type 2 diabetes. That one has gotten up to 21% weight loss in clinical trials compared with about 15% for Wegovy which is approved for obesity. Now, if you're looking at this new medicine, it's also from Eli Lilly, and it's called Ritatrutide. That's the sort of chemical name for it. It doesn't yet have a brand name because it's only in mid-stage trials. They've seen 24% weight loss over even a shorter period of time, 48 weeks, than these drugs that are already on the market. And that one mimics three different hormones, and so you're sort of seeing that turbocharged uh, amount of weight loss in this trial. Now, all of these medicines are injectable drugs given once a week right now. We've also been seeing some new data on pill versions of these drugs, which produce about 15% weight loss, too. So this field is dramatically opening up right now. Yeah, and it sounds very promising. Are there any side effects for these drugs? There definitely are. Some of the things we hear about are sort of gastrointestinal side effects like nausea, vomiting, constipation, things like that. It tends to be worse when you're just starting on the drugs and slowly increasing the dose. But it is something that we see across the entire class. And for patients that start taking these drugs, is it something they have to do in perpetuity for the, for the rest of their lives, essentially? So far, the trials have shown that when patients stop taking these medicines, weight does tend to rebound. And so it's something that's being looked into. Can there be more counseling in terms of exercise and nutrition mm-hmm. that can help folks you know, not have to take the drugs forever uh, and be able to keep weight, weight off? But so far, we have not been seeing that. All right, Meg Terrell, keep us posted. Thank you so much. We'll still ahead on the lead, an update on the Ohio College student murders and a new filing from prosecutors. But first, here's CNN's Alex Marquardt in for Wolf Blitzer with what's next in the Situation Room. Alex, good to see you. Good to see you, Bianna. We will have a lot more on the fallout from this incredible insurrection carried out by Evgeny Prigozhin. I'll be speaking with a former CIA director as well as a former national security advisor. And then my colleagues and I have new reporting on what U.S. intelligence knew on the lead up to this rebellion. All that at the top of the hour right here in the Situation Room. In our law and justice lead, a new court filing shows Idaho prosecutors will seek the death penalty for Brian Koberger, the man accused of killing four University of Idaho students last November. Police arrested Koberger at his parents' home more than a month after the murders. Investigators say they connected him to DNA on the night sheet found at the crime scene. Koberger faces four counts of first-degree murder in the killings of Ethan Chapin, Zana Kernodal, Kaylee Concalves, and Madison Mogan. He has been in custody since his arrest and is being held without bail.
International lead, more than 5,000 flights across the United States have been delayed or canceled after powerful storms tore through parts of the country. Like this powerful funnel cloud that was captured as it was touching down in Greenwood, Indiana. Thunderstorms raged through Arkansas, Tennessee, Mississippi and parts of the Ohio Valley Sunday, leaving more than 700,000 people without power. Well, today, some 90 million people are under threat of severe storms in the mid-Atlantic and northeast, and even as far south as Raleigh, North Carolina. Well, thank you so much for watching the past two hours. I'm Bianca Goladriga in for Jake Tapper. Thank you for watching The Lead. Be sure to catch Aaron Burnett out front from Kiev at 7 p.m. Our coverage continues now with Alex Marquardt in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.